Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to another Saturday Coffee Clutch with Heather Lofthouse, the Executive Director of Inequality Media Civic Action, and my former student. Happy to be here. Good uh, morning. Uh, good morning, Heather. So uh, we have a kind of a special today, right? Yes. This is a this is this is a program that you and I put on. Um, before the City Arts and Lecture of San Francisco. Yeah, it was a big auditorium and we were invited to talk about digital media and the power of narrative to con to something. It was a huge auditorium and there were dozens of people there. At least. Maybe, maybe, maybe eight. ten. No, <laughs> yeah. no, it was a very, very big group and they were very appreciative. Um, and you were terrific, by the way. You're kind. You were fabulous. And they were lovely hosting us and the audience was actually pretty fantastic. So we thought, um, those of you who are joining us for coffee, we thought that we would actually uh, just present this to you because uh, we got a lot of very, very positive feedback on it. Yeah, it's longer than usual. It's a bonus, a bonus episode. I don't know what we call it. Well, think of it as a bonus. Yeah. A, a kind of a, a bonus clutch. Enjoy. Bye. And we are so delighted to be here with you tonight. Speaking of the election, <laughs> I am so relieved. Now, I mean, in the sense that it could have been much worse. Now, that I, I don't want to assume, for the sake of this evening or this audience, uh, that you share necessarily my particular values. Uh, but we are going to talk about how political communication has changed over time. And the election that we just went through is a good backdrop to all of this. A lot of you are coming with questions, and we're grateful for that. Um, and we will set up some framing that I think will apply to some of the questions. Um, why? I mean, how many years have you been in politics now? Uh, well, many. Many, right? Uh, but, uh, but, I, but I really um, was very interested in politics, uh, Heather, as, as I think you know, maybe we haven't talked about this, uh, really from the start. I mean, not the Right start, right. but I'm. I mean, I used to. I remember uh, sitting on the couch watching uh, Edward R. Murrow. Yes. Uh, at a time in our nation's history when there was at least a, a much more of a, a feeling that the middle class was growing, uh, that we were all in it together, that we were making progress on on issues of race and gender. Uh, we weren't there, obviously, we had a long way to go, but there was at least a sense that we were making some headway. Uh, and politics was relatively boring. Anybody remember Dwight Eisenhower? <laughs> you do. I mean, Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican president, uh, was, uh, was a kind of a boring man. <laughs> I can't this, imagine. I mean, if only. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Uh, the, the top marginal income tax rate under Eisenhower was over 90%. Uh, and the effective income tax rate on the top, on people at the top, was over 50%. Uh, these are things, and, and, and again, we were making progress on so many other issues that I kind of took it all for granted. I was interested in politics mainly because my father was passionate about politics, and we were, I remember the first, my first memory is the Army McCarthy hearings uh, in the early 50s. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
and the interesting thing to me, thinking about the midterm elections we just had, and that didn't come up in any coverage, and I expected it to, uh, is that in 1954, in the midterms of 1954, you all remember what happened, right? Yeah. Crystal clear. Um, there were the Republicans who had control over the House and Senate uh, in a kind of reaction to years of Democratic dominance with FDR and Truman. The Republicans lost control of the House and the Senate in 1954 because of Joe McCarthy, because of his witch hunts, his communist witch hunts. Uh, and I was thinking about that because I think that... Uh, uh, one of the big issues obviously hanging over the Republican Party uh, this past election is the person who declared for president again last night, whatever his name is. Can't remember. Uh, and, and his presence uh, in this election, although he wasn't on any ballot, was obviously enormous. I think Americans, like in 1954, uh, there was a kind of recoiling uh, against something that seemed so fundamentally un-American and that was the election deniers, uh, almost all of whom, particularly the ones who would have control over the elections, the secretaries of state and the governors who would appoint secretaries of state, uh, were all, none of them were elected. Right, especially in battleground states. Especially in battleground yeah. states. So I think that's a huge yes. plus. Me too. So tonight we'll be talking about how people process information, and young people in particular. So we mentioned you wrote a number of books. We won't get into the number. Um, so how did you change what you were doing and go from books to digital media and, and movies and video and thinking about the internet? Well, I haven't completely given up on books. Uh, I still write them and still, oh. <laughs> and still read them. Uh, but undoubtedly there's been a shift uh, and what happened to me was about uh, uh, nine years ago, one of my sons, who is very much into digital media and humor, and we'll come back to the issue of humor later, uh, my son Sam, he runs a, a group called uh, collegehumor.com. Anybody? There are eight of you who have heard of it, but I'll, I'll tell Sam. Uh, but Sam came to me and he said, Dad, I know you try to, to the extent that you can, uh, talk about in your books issues of social justice, issues of widening and shared prosperity, uh, but you know, you're not really getting through that far with your books. And I said, what do you mean? I was very defensive and a little bit upset. He said, well, people are not reading as much. My generation, and, and Sam is a, what would he be? A sort of, I think millennial, I think you would say. older millennial. Uh, my generation is not reading, and the young, younger generation that I deal with all the time, the Gen Zs, uh, they, they are very acute, they are uh, extraordinarily intelligent, they're very committed, but they aren't reading quite as much either. And so if you just put all your time into writing books, you're not going to reach many of us. Well, I was depressed for about a month. <laughs> I believe it. Uh, and then I decided that maybe he is right, and I did some research of my own and found that, indeed, something fundamentally different had happened. Now, let me make it very, very clear. My books have never been wild bestsellers. In fact, uh, I was at a fundraiser not too long ago uh, at somebody's home, 
and I saw my first book, first book I ever read, in their bookshelf. And I said, I'm amazed that you have my first book. It's extraordinary. I've never been to anybody's house where they had my first book in their bookshelf. Uh, and he looked a little bit abashed. And I said, you look abashed. <laughs> and he said, well, yes, pull, uh, maybe you should pull out your book and open it. And I did. I pulled it out and opened it. And the entire inside had been hollowed out. <laughs> I love it. it. It was a safekeeping device. Oh. It had been sold to him. I mean, he put jewels and things there because right. on, the, on the proposition that nobody would pull out my book. It's terrible. It was the safest place. I don't know. So I, I don't want to give you the impression that I was a major, major bestseller, uh, but I still relied on the written word. Uh, and then when Jake and I did our two movies, uh, I started to get much more feedback not just uh, my son, Sam, but also other people about how the movie, the, the actual visual expression had, had affected them. Uh, and that's when I started turning to videos. Yes. So, so, with that, maybe we should get into some. So tonight, I'm at the helm with the slides. We do have a virtual audience. Thank you to everyone who's joining. Um, and, and for anybody who will be uh, listening to this on the radio, uh, I don't know what we're going to say. Maybe we'll try to summarize. Oh, the videos? The videos. Oh, I think it's fine, because most of them are spoken. Yeah, and but so, for example, the first one we oh, chose. You, not it. I'm not summarizing I'm it. I'm not summarizing that one either. Okay, someone in the audience can do Okay. It. So we will go through some slides, but we will speak to what's on them, so no one should worry that they're missing anything if they're not here with us. And thank you for your patience. So let us get into it. We are going to play you something right now. Now, did anybody understand what they just saw? <clears throat> Heather, did you understand what you just saw? I did, but Michael on our team really understands it. Yeah, and Michael, uh, I don't know, is Michael here? Michael, we hope you're here. Yes, we heard him. Uh, because Michael on our team, uh, uh, I guess about a year and a half ago or two years ago, said we ought to do something on TikTok. And I didn't know what TikTok was. But today... I still don't know what TikTok is. Uh, but we do, Michael uh, is a genius at doing these things, and somehow uh, these images do have an effect. And I think it's the combination of the images and the words, and people are watching it over and over again. It's not a one-time experience, because it's so fast, you have to watch it again. I think we should get into some of the statistics that are so interesting about how young people are consuming digital information, well, including Well, uh, also, videos. we've got about a half a million young people who are, I think, I assume they're young people, who are watching these TikToks. They skew younger on TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even younger on Snapchat. I don't even know what Snapchat is. Well, it knows you. <laughs> uh, but but we're, we, what we want to do tonight is talk about these digital platforms and then talk about the relationship between these digital platforms and how people are, particularly young people, are learning, but also between all of that and education and politics. That's our goal. It is. And that video has 157,000 views, which is 
phenomenal. So let's go to the next slide, and we will um, read a few things for those of you who are at home. Basically, some statistics about how young people are processing information online. So here are some goodies. 95% of teens have access to a smartphone. 95%. 45% report that they are online almost constantly. Now that's scary to me. I have a granddaughter, 14 years old, and she is online almost constantly. And the way I know that is that when I send her a message right. or text, yep. she sends me back something within seconds. Yep, that's it. I know. Th this is another good one. 85% of Gen Z has posted video content online. So that's almost 9 out of 10 people. This one is a killer. 85% of people watch with the sound off. Now this is... Wait a minute, with the sound off? Yes. You know how the audience is listening? Or it used to be? No longer. It's wild. Now wait a minute. I, I want to make sure I understand. 85% are watching with the sound off. Internet videos, especially on Facebook. That number comes um, a lot on Facebook. Okay. Now, now our skews closer to 60%, which is nice. It's nice that they're hearing something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, but, but what I want to get into, and I have some theories about this, and you're much closer to it, Heather, is actually what is it that explains the process of learning, of assimilating information. And I find that just extraordinary, that they're watching videos with the sound off. Right. And presumably they're getting something out of it. Well, I think we'll talk about this later, but some of the techniques we use to make sure that our videos are effective are words on screen, images on screen, big numbers on screen, a lot of you know matching what we're seeing, they're seeing with what uh, we're, you're saying, and we put the captions down. It's, it's interesting, and think about it, people are commuting, and they're scrolling, and they're busy, and, they're, and then they stand and watch, and then they move to the next thing. I mean, it is kind of wild to think about, but this is what we're up against. So my next statistic, two more, 75% of all on-screen content is viewed for less than one minute. So again, that's scrolling culture. I saw a, a, a video, video of a two-year-old mm -hmm. recently who was going like this. Yeah. I mean, it starts very, very early. It's almost pre-language. Yeah, I know. My son is also, Mom, give me that phone. It's painful watching you. That's what he said the other day. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, he's, so, for, and lastly, 40% of young people, when looking, I love this one, when looking for, or hate it, for a place for lunch, they use TikTok and Instagram, not Google for search. So they are thinking, I, I need a video, I need someone to tell me, someone's, I'm needing a visual, a moving image to tell me. I mean, I don't do that. I look for well, what's Well, I don't even understand that. I mean, I, I barely understand Google search. I do understand Google search. I do Google search. But if they're not using Google search, how do they use these other... How do they use Instagram, for example, or well, TikTok? Well, so there's a search bar, and you could type in your letters and your words, but they're not looking for a result that looks like words. They're looking for a result that looks like a moving image. So when, if I'm looking for delicious eats, San Francisco dinner, something will come back, and it'll be a video telling me I had a great meal over there, or I'm rating the top three, you know, sassiest sushi restaurants. So that's what you should be looking for, I guess. And me. I know. Um, yeah, but it's so, so this is what we're up against. The audience is not listening. People are on their phones, right? It's fewer and fewer laptops, and we see this data. Um, near constant content consumption. 
Have you noticed this change in this, or trends around this change in the classroom? Yeah, yeah I was just about to say. Uh, I am very aware of it in the classroom. And I, what I do, uh, one of my classes at Berkeley has 800 students. Now, it's not your typical Berkeley classroom, right. I let me hasten to say. Uh, but uh, in that 800-person uh, classroom, I ask them not to use electronic devices. And do they heed what you say? No. <laughs> uh, no, it's interesting, uh, actually, because uh, although I explain to them why not, I, I say to them, please do not use electronic devices. It's distracting uh, to other students around you because they can get distracted by images. Uh, also, uh, it's distracting to me. And also, I want you to focus on the process of learning that we are engaged in together. Uh, what I do is not just a lecture. I get, you know, I get down into the, into the audience. I, I talk to them. I, I pose questions. There's a Socratic dialogue. I do a lot, of, a lot of things that assume that their attention spans are relatively small. But nevertheless, I want them with me. I don't see how they can learn unless they're with right. me. But... Uh, I've discovered uh, that at least some of my students are almost, and I use this term very, very loosely, obviously, addicted. They, they find it very, very difficult to be apart from their electronic devices for, well, I, I was asking them for two hours. Uh, almost impossible. Yeah. Dopamine. Uh, well, I, I don't know... I mean, we can, we can talk about what it is in the brain, and there's a lot of brain research about this, uh, but I'm struck by how uh, merely uh, the, the difficulty of sitting and engaging intellectually without having a screen and without doing something with your fingers. And your class is highly engaging. I mean, I was your student, I've seen you, and you do quizzes, right? So you even incorporate technology into the classroom. Yeah, there is a lot of technology. Yeah. I, have, I will put a, a bunch of questions on the screen, and then people will, uh, and students will vote with their little technology, with little uh, gizmos that they all have, and so they can see in real time what the rest of the class thinks about various issues. And then we can go through the issues, and then we can do it again, and they can see how the class changes its attitudes. And we can do all sorts of uh, wonderful things that way, but I need them to be present present to do that. No, it's difficult. Um, should we show a video, which is one of our classic explainers, which means it's an economics topic that rings true, and it has a lot of motion graphics that are bespoke by very talented editors we work with, um, and it's kind of a typical, what we call, hero content. So it takes some production, and it takes some time and post to really make it, and we think that it is the kind of thing that is engaging people online. Yeah, this is as close, this is one on wealth, wealth inequality. That's it. Uh, and it's the closest we have come, although we're doing more and more like this, uh, to taking what I try to do in the classroom and putting it into video format, changing it uh, so that it actually uh, is, is much more in accord with the way that, again, especially young people are processing information. Elon Musk's wealth has surpassed $200 billion. It would take the median U.S. worker over 4 million years to make that much. Wealth inequality is eating this country alive. 
We're now in America's second Gilded Age, just like the late 19th century, when a handful of robber barons monopolized the economy, kept wages down, and bribed lawmakers. While today's robber barons take joyrides into space, the distance between their gargantuan wealth and the financial struggles of working Americans has never been clearer. During the first 19 months of the pandemic, U.S. billionaires added $2.1 trillion to their collective wealth, and the rich have enough political power to cut their taxes to almost nothing, sometimes literally nothing. In fact, Jeff Bezos paid no federal income taxes in 2007 or in 2011. By 2018, the 400 richest Americans paid a lower overall tax rate than almost anyone else. But we can't solve this problem unless we know how it was created in the first place. Let's start with the basics. Wealth inequality in America is far larger than income inequality. Income is what you earn each week or month or year. Wealth refers to the sum total of your assets, your car, your home, art, anything else you own that's valuable. Valuable not only because there's a market for it, a price other people are willing to pay to buy it, but because wealth itself grows. As the population expands and the nation becomes more productive, the overall economy continues to expand. This expansion pushes up the values of stocks, bonds, rental property, homes, and most other assets. Of course, recessions and occasional depressions can reduce the value of such assets. Ooh, I love that one. Why did we stop? <laughs> it was 10 minutes long. Oh, well, we want to get to okay. Q&A yes, at we some do. point. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but so that is a classic example of a video that gets a lot of views and what's important, it gets people staying on for a long time. We talked about earlier that people mostly are looking at videos with the sound off in under a minute. It's not the case in that particular video. Well, it's something, it, it's an example of what I cannot do quite in a classroom. And that is the combination of motion graphics and music and examples that are visually compelling uh, is not is just not possible. I mean, a, a classroom is, I could I certainly show that in a classroom, but that's not what classroom teaching is about. Right. Uh, this is not to suggest that classroom teaching is, there's not a place for it. Uh, and we could substitute that. No, I don't think so, Heather. Uh, but what we have managed to do with these kinds of videos is get them into many uh, high school classrooms. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's also true of the two, uh, the two uh, films that Jake uh, Kornbluth and I did. Uh, and, and, and I think classroom teaching, particularly at that level, um, it's just easier when you have very, very good uh, videos that you can utilize. That's great. So I would like to show one more video. This next one is Four Myths. And what's important about it is we've just been showing it um, to a number of audiences, and it has been highly resonant, really resonating with a whole range of people in terms of the metrics we study online, which is gender, political party, age, location, and I think it's an important one. So, so it, here's, yes. here's where we begin uh, to get into politics. Uh, because much of what we do is explainers, really is not directly uh, political as such. Uh, and because uh, 
most of what we do is, frankly, a not-for-profit and cannot be a political. Uh, but there is a 401c4, technically, mm -hmm. uh, that allows us to do some slightly more political work. Uh, and is this the one, is this on inflation? Yes. Okay. Here are the facts. Fact number one, inflation is not being driven by wage increases. Although wages have been rising, they've been rising more slowly than prices. Hourly wages grew by 5% in the past year, but prices rose 8.6%. This means when you adjust for inflation, workers actually got a 3.5% pay cut over the past year. Fact number two, Corporate profits are one of the main drivers of inflation. Corporations are raising prices above what's needed to cover their higher costs. These markups have soared. Corporations are getting away with this price gouging because they face little or no competition. And they're using the specter of inflation as a cover. Last year, corporations raked in their highest profits in 70 years. One recent study found that over half the increase in prices we've been experiencing can be attributed to fatter corporate profits. Fact number three, federal assistance to people during the pandemic did not overheat the economy. Most families who haven't had a real wage increase in years use the assistance to weather the crisis pay down debt, or save for the future. The assistance was barely enough to keep working families afloat. Fact number four, inflation is not the result of President Biden's or Democrats' policies. Republicans want to blame them for rising prices. They're all in denial. The Democrats need to look in the mirror because the problem is the Democrats. But Democrats have tried advancing bills to bring down prices and address corporate price gouging. Yet Republicans and a handful of corporate Democrats refuse to pass them. So don't fall for the corporate myths about inflation. Higher prices are not being driven by wage increases. They were not driven by federal assistance to people during the pandemic. And Democrats are not to blame. Inflation is being driven in large part by record corporate profits. The best way to fight it is to remove corporate incentives to raise prices through a windfall profits tax and reduce monopoly power through tougher antitrust enforcement. Know the truth. Um, well, it, it, it's interesting, uh, and, and I think you have some data, Heather, on the extent to which that actually shifted some people's views. Uh, but what's interesting to me is that two weeks ago, uh, President Biden, two weeks ago, this was just a, literally a week and a half before the election, President Biden did announce that he wanted to move on a windfall profits tax. Now, pretty late in the game. Right. Uh, you know, the Conservative Party in Britain uh, has already moved on an, a windfall profits tax, as have uh, other European powers. Uh, but uh, it's a matter of how people understand an issue, how the issue is shaped, what the alternatives are. And very often, particularly during a campaign, uh, there is very little opportunity for people to understand what is at stake, what's the underlying dynamic. 
And I, I, we should add it was on big oil, I mean, the windfall profits tax yes. that we've seen. Um, so what's interesting about this, this, we just got this data this morning, and forgive me for showing you my back, everybody. Um, so what you said earlier, when, when education meets politics, I mean, for us, it's about getting out the truth. It's about reframing things, and, it's, and then we study how does this land with our different audiences. And all the different platforms have different audiences. There's small overlap, but it's actually smaller than you'd think. And this uh, video really resonated with what's defined as very liberal, moderate liberal, moderate, moderate conservative, and very conservative. And so, so just to be very clear, please. those last two horizontal bars are conservative, either moderate conservative or very conservative. Yes. And you're talking about how much they changed their views after having watched the video. That's it. And it was compared to a controlled group, and it's called a persuasion study or a lift study, and the private sector does this in their sleep for toothpaste, you name it, all the time. Various, the Trump campaign used this on Facebook, this kind of thing. Um, and it's just a way of measuring, again, resonance and how people feel and what they say they're going to do after they see a video. Um, and this is impressive that it uh, we test a lot of videos and they don't always go, you know, this kind of, they don't light up on a heat map across all the different, the full range of the spectrum. And so that to me signals this is something, it's truthiness. 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 It's yeah. a good signal for truthiness. So people are persuaded, mm -hmm. in other words, by, after seeing this. I, I, what, um, I've been very, very much uh, uh, passionate about, as, as, as Heather, Heather knows this about me, is that we've got to reach out beyond our bubbles, our liberal bubbles, and our progressive bubbles, uh, and reach out to that part of America that is not totally uh, dug in, in terms of Trumpism or uh, right-wing conservatism. Uh, and uh, one way of doing that, we have found, uh, is to talk about issues in ways that they can understand, beginning beginning with kitchen table issues. Issues that uh, don't have the label liberal or conservative or Trump or, or Biden or Washington, uh, but really are about where people live uh, and the prices they're paying. This is why the inflation video, I think, did have so big an impact. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit more about what specific techniques uh, we find that we can use in video to actually break through all the noise that we were talking about. Um, I think it's important, this is so interesting, a recent uh, study from Oxford, out of Oxford, talked about how young audiences see the news. 71% um, of Gen Z gets their news from social media. So it's not something called a newspaper, it's not, television news, it is social media is how they're getting their news, you know, three quarters of them practically. Um, but this Oxford study said, news outlets often say, what we're doing is putting out what you should know. Um, and that makes sense, that resonates with kind of what I used to think the news was, like this is something I should know, this is something that's important. What young audience see the news as is four things, what I should know, plus what is useful for me to know, what is interesting for me to know, and what is fun for me to know. And I think that 
concept of how this, these people are consuming news and what they're expecting from videos, that there's an action they can take away, um, is so important to think about as we design what we're making. What do, you, what do you think of that individualistic take on this? Well, it worries me a little bit, yeah. honestly. Uh, it also worries me because it, there is an element of entertainment that has crept into, and I think Donald Trump uh, exemplifies this. Uh, ex- you know, uh, when he last night uh, said that he was going to run for re-election, uh, I was uh, very interested in today's coverage, and I started watching it. Social media coverage, uh, coverage in print media, coverage in, on uh, the network news last night and today. Uh, and what I... Basically, I did kind of a random survey, but what I concluded uh, was that, do you, do you remember the Sherlock Holmes story, The Dog That Didn't Bark? Mm-hmm. Anybody remember that? Where, where Sherlock Holmes decided, inferred, as was his favorite word, uh, that a particular person was the criminal uh, because a particular dog that was his pet did not bark at the time of the crime. Uh, And it's a little bit like that with Donald Trump and last night. Uh, The dog that didn't bark was the media. There was almost no media coverage. Uh, I mean, in social media, even on some of the right-wing platforms, not nearly what you would expect. Uh, Fox did cover it, but Fox, even before Trump finished, uh, Fox had moved away gone to other news items. Uh, CNN covered it partly, but then Anderson Cooper moved off and went on to Poland, where some people were killed because there was a missile strike. Uh, But uh, again, even in what you would expect to be uh, the social media areas that are very, very uh, frequented by conservatives, there wasn't very much coverage. Why is that? I think because Donald Trump himself is becoming less newsworthy. Uh, there's just... <laughs> I no, mean, I, but this is, I mean, this is a good thing. I, well, it I'm may be, I, think, I, think it's, I think it's interesting because yeah. I think Donald Trump, uh, he, he was the media. I mean, Donald Trump doesn't represent uh, a bunch of principles. He doesn't represent uh, a particular set of policies. Uh, Donald Trump is all about getting media attention. That's right. what he, even before he was, ran for president in 2016. Uh, and what interests me about the reaction to his last night's announcement was that the lack of media coverage was like the dog who didn't bite, uh, bark. Uh, there was no bark. Right. Uh, and Donald Trump without the media is nothing. He doesn't exist. Right. I think this, yeah, it's, it's a relief. And part of this is the relation with Murdoch. I mean, you did say it was on Fox News, but it's less than it was. Uh, far less. And Rupert Murdoch, obviously. I mean, in fact, uh, I don't know how many of you read the New York Post. Anybody here read the New York Post every day? Uh, but the New York Post had a banner uh, along the bottom of the, of the front page. And that banner was, uh, if I can remember it correctly, um, a, a man... Uh, from Florida announces his presidential bid. So Rupert Murdoch has basically given up on Donald Trump, uh, partly because he's not newsworthy and partly because Rupert Murdoch has decided that uh, DeSantis is his 
person. Uh, so uh, this is not necessarily good or bad, but I think it's interesting given what we're talking about now. Yeah, I think so too. I do think we should talk a little bit about some of the other techniques we use that really allow a video or different kinds of content to break through. Um, again, with the goal of getting the truth out. And we can talk about what makes a successful video. I mean, we could talk about that for hours too. Is it views? Is it engagement? Is it a call to action that we can prove was taken afterwards? But we've talked a little bit about words on screens um, and the visual display of information, absolutely critical. Uh, the first three seconds are essential and it's worse than it was. It wasn't always the, that the first three seconds had to be so gripping and get someone in. But I think that's because people are bombarded particularly young people, with so much uh, com competition for their attention yeah. uh, that it is very difficult to keep them uh, after the first three seconds. Right, and the TikTok videos are only three seconds, so we're dealing with that too. I think one other technique we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about it, humor. Now let's, let's talk about humor, okay. because what I try to do in my class is, is use humor selectively to illustrate various points. Uh, and humor is the sugar that helps the medicine go down. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's familiar. It's critically, yes. <laughs> it's critically important. Uh, and uh, the uh, wonderful man, uh, Republican Senator Alan Simpson, some of you remember Alan. Uh, Alan and I, used to do a show on WGBH in Boston uh, called The Long and the Short of It. Uh, so good. Alan Simpson, uh, still very much alive. He's, uh, he's in his 90s, but far too tall. He's, now, he's six foot six, <laughs> six foot seven. Uh, and The Long and the Short of It was kind of a humorous show. Right. Uh, we got into some uh, serious issues, but the, the reason that we love each other and the reason we are dear, dear friends, is because we joke a lot. And I think that humor is something we don't talk enough about uh, as something that is important in terms of political communication. I mean, uh, when I was in the Clinton administration, one, th one thing that the political people in the White House were always looking at was late night comedians, because the late night comedians were signaling to audiences what was really hypocritical or funny, not in terms of cruel uh, cruelty like we've, we have today, yep. uh, but in terms of a satire and parody uh, that was very, very indicative of where the public mood was or was going. Right. Uh, and then we have Archie Bunker, of course, very, very important in terms of educating the public about, uh, about bigotry uh, and the seamy side of bigotry through humor. Uh, and then John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, uh, probably more important politically uh, over the last uh, probably 15, 20 years than any other set of uh, people on television in communicating and communicating political values. Uh, and then, of course, there is also The Simpsons. The Simpsons. This is a great story. Um, so the Simpsons called or emailed and Bob sent and we were talking and he said, do you think I should do it? I said, I'm sorry. Do I think you should do the Simpsons? I'm sorry. The Simpsons called. So they, they basically said, we're doing an episode. It's written by Tim Long. It's fabulous. Um, about the demise of the middle class. And we thought, oh, okay, that's well, right up our alley, your alley. And then they said, and of course it's going to be a musical number with Hugh Jackman. 
Now, let me just assure you, uh, as I assured Heather, I cannot carry a tune, even with Hugh Jackman. I, and the idea of doing a duet on The Simpsons with Hugh Jackman, where he is a cartoon character and I'm a cartoon character, was both exciting to me, but also at the same time, absolutely appalling. It frightened me. I couldn't sleep the night before. Shall we take a look? Yeah. <laughs> Factories closed, unemployment with Spike. Here to explain it is Robert B. Reich. The decline of unions, rampant corporate greed, Wall Street malfeasance, and the rise of short-sighted politics all contributed to increased economic inequality, widespread real unemployment, wage stagnation, and a lower standard of living for millions of Americans. They chopped salaries to raise stock prices, cut up the pie and kept all the slices. Tax breaks went to CEOs, never trickling down to every shows. And so it came to pass. Greedy rich men kicked our ass. Fiddling while they burned our middle class. So good. Uh, but that... Uh, <laughs> That probably influenced more people uh, than uh, certainly any book I've ever written. Now, well, and I hate to say that. Well, I hate to say that. You're all readers. You wouldn't be here if you weren't. But there is a difference between humor and ridicule, right? I mean, we're at a funny time where there's clever snark and then there's awfulness. I mean, it's a fine well, line. I, I, I think that, um, and, and here I, I have never... Uh, agreed with Mitch McConnell about anything. But M Mitch McConnell yesterday said uh, he thought that one thing that turned off voters in this past election uh, was the, the kind of snide ridicule. He had a whole bunch of, of ways of characterizing what Republican candidates were doing. And I think he's absolutely correct. There's a vast difference between good-natured uh, 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 sort of uh, joking about somebody or about somebody, what somebody has said, uh, and the kind of cruel ridicule that we're seeing, or we have seen. Uh, and it's not just obviously coming out of the right. I think there were some on the left who were doing it too. But people don't like that. Uh, and unlike some of the joking, positive, funny stuff that even you know, Colbert and Stewart were doing, uh, that cruel satire, cruel ridicule is not liked, is yeah. not appealing. Uh, I think that people have learned a lesson, hopefully, uh, maybe permanently. Yeah, I hope so too. So with that, why don't we open it up to Q&A, the Q&A portion of the evening. Um, there's Jordan, there's Holly from City Arts and Lectures who will have their mics and we would now like to open it up for questions. Hello, thank you very much, uh, both to Heather and Robert. I would love to hear your thoughts and even a possible solution about the strike by University of California graduate students. Um, I think it's fascinating because, um, well, I have skin in this game in several ways. I think we all do if you're a resident of California. It's a state institution and system. We have a state with the immense budget surplus. I happen to have a daughter at UC Berkeley, so it's really interesting to me. I mean, uh, Well, it's interesting to me, too, obviously, because not only am I a faculty member there, 
And under the, as I understand it, as I read the, uh, the Wagner Act, 1935 Fair Labor Standards Act, as a member of the faculty who employs teaching assistants, uh, I am on the management side. Uh, but as somebody who was formerly Secretary of Labor, and given the values that I hold dear, I would never cross a picket line, and I am very much on the side of the student workers and those who are trying to get better wages. Uh, now, let me make sure people understand the situation, because this is a very important topic, and it's not just uh, the University of California, it's all over the country. Uh, more and more of the teaching and research responsibilities in major universities are being taken by people who don't have the status and certainly don't have nearly the pay of professors. They are lecturers, they are teaching assistants, they are people who are research assistants, uh, they are doing more and more and more of the work. It's kind of a microcosm of what's happening in the, in the, in the entire culture, in the entire economy. Uh, and we've got to stop it. We've got to pay these people what they are worth. And... Yeah. Thank you. And, that, and we could get deeper into that because I just scratched the surface. The question is, who's going to pay? Uh, you know, the University of California, at least a large portion of how it runs uh, comes from taxpayers. Not as much as you probably think. It's 18%. Uh, but still, the issue is, how are you going to afford to pay everybody what they, I believe, are worth? Uh, I think it can be done, should be done, as a matter of economics and morality. So the second question, quick one, do you think Biden should run? Um, I think that that really is at least three or four separate questions. One, <laughs> one is, uh, is he, has he done a good job? Uh, and I think the answer is yes. I think he's done an extremely good job. Uh, the second is, if he wants to run for president again, if he want, uh, should the Democratic Party uh, allow him to? I think there's almost no question. Yes. Uh, you, I mean, you're, you're not going to, you can't have a party uh, with the head of the party who wants to run, who's, already, who's an incumbent, uh, and, and say no. And he's done a decent job. He absolutely should have the opportunity to run. The third question, though, is, uh, is he going to be the strongest candidate against the Republican, likely Republican candidate? Uh, there, I think if Donald Trump is the Republican candidate, Biden is probably a, an extremely strong candidate. He's the only person who has actually beaten uh, Trump in a presidential election. Uh, but uh, I worry about an issue that is close to my heart, and judging from what I can see of this audience, may be close <laughs> to some of your hearts, uh, and it has to do with age. Uh, I'm not an ageist. Uh, I am almost as old as Joe Biden. I am, my birthday was almost exactly on the same day, I hate to say this, as Donald Trump's, uh, and Bill Clinton's, by the way, and George W. Bush, <laughs> and Dolly Parton. Yes. She ought to run for president. <laughs> uh, 
But, uh, so I'm not an ageist, but I do believe that there is a problem, potentially, with electing somebody who, by the time he took office, would be 82, and by the time he finished, would be 86. Uh, I think that that uh, is a potential problem, just in terms of energy, uh, capacity, uh, what I, you know, I've seen the presidency very, very up close, uh, and uh, it's very, very hard to imagine somebody that age doing that kind of a job. So I, I want to just put that out there very clearly. Uh, and uh, do I think that uh, somebody else in the Democratic Party, are there others who could do a, a better job in, the, in an election against Trump? Are there younger people? Uh, yes, there are. Uh, but they're not going to have a chance to be seen and evaluated uh, if Joe Biden uh, wants to be president and if he declares his intention to be president. So that's a complicated way of answering and not answering your question. <laughs> this one is to your left. Um, thank you so much for being here. I've been reading your books and also watching your videos for a while. Um, my question is about the potential ability to actually do something about income inequality and wealth inequality in this country. It seems like things are definitely, like you said, things were going in one direction, now we're going in another direction with the billionaires just constantly monopolizing everything. What, what, is, what do you see as the possibility of us doing something in the foreseeable future in the next five years? Uh, well, I, th I don't know about the foreseeable future, at least the next few years, but I do know historically we did have a period of time that resembled the current period of time. Uh, it was called the Gilded Age. Uh, it was in the 1880s, 1890s, in which you had a handful of people who presided over real monopolies uh, who uh, essentially siphoned off a great deal of wealth of the nation uh, and at the same time paid off politicians. Uh, in fact, some of the robber barons, as we call them, uh, they hired uh, people to put literally sacks of money on the desks of pliant legislators at the state level and at the federal level. Well, what happened then? Uh, America rose up. Uh, there was a populist and then progressive demand that these things end, that this degree of corruption and concentrated wealth uh, just come to an end, uh, that it was antithetical to American values. Uh, and uh, beginning with Teddy Roosevelt, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, uh, there was a crusade against this kind of monopolization and this kind of concentration of wealth. Uh, it ended, it didn't end, that is the concentration of wealth didn't end until we had an economic catastrophe because frankly so much wealth was siphoned off that most people no longer had the capacity to buy everything that we as a nation could produce and that was called the Great Depression. It was called the Great Crash first of all, because people had to borrow so much money to maintain their standard of living, and that bubble burst. Does that mean we have to go through another great crash and another great depression to end the current degree of concentrated wealth? Well, I, I certainly hope not. 
if you look at polls, you see that there is a great deal of support for a wealth tax. Uh, and Elizabeth Warren uh, came up with a, an extremely good and effective uh, set of ideas. Bernie Sanders also. I, I think that most people in this country would support it. Uh, I think it has to be. We've got to, we simply can't have a society in which this much wealth can corrupt our political system and also simply buy whatever it wants. And I mean that. I, I mean, uh, some of you may not care about Elon Musk's buying Twitter, uh, but making playthings of major communications vehicles in this country is an example of exactly what I'm talking about. Hi, my question has to do with student loan debt. On the one hand, I, I'm uh, very much for trying to ensure that uh, people who want to go to school are not uh, socked with this debt they can't repay. On the other hand, I feel strongly that, maybe from my own life, that people who invest in their future that you know, have some skin in the game, that that's a good thing for society as well. So I feel some conflict between those two uh, positions, and maybe you can clear this up for me and tell me which one is better for our society in the long run. Well, I'll tell you what I, what I believe. Uh, I first, when I first came to Berkeley as a research assistant uh, in 1968, uh, the tuition uh, at Berkeley, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, was close to zero. Is that right? Uh, and Berkeley was one of uh, a number of state institutions, not just in California, but around the United States, where public universities were basically fully subsidized by taxpayers. Uh, now, that's obviously no longer the case, but I think we ought to aim for free public higher education. It's very important. Now, if we, if we cannot get there, or if for some reason there is a feeling that we ought to have different kinds of priorities, and I'm very sensitive to the fact that we have a, a large uh, working class, non-college educated, uh, that uh, needs a great deal of attention, particularly right now, if we can't do that, then what we need is an income contingent loan system. And by that I mean, for example, that the first 10 years after you graduate, your 10% of your full-time salary ought to go into a fund that will pay for the next set of students. If you are very wealthy, if you do very, very well, if you have a, a job in a, uh, in, in a management consulting firm or on Wall Street or in a big law firm, you are going to be subsidizing in that kind of system uh, people who 
turn out to want to be social workers uh, or do other things that are less lucrative. But I think that we've got to move toward that kind of a income contingent system that ends after, let's say, a fixed number of years, takes a percentage of people's incomes uh, and ends up subsidizing those who are not going to go into high income occupations. Thank you. I wanted to follow up on what you said about the popularity of a wealth tax and just ask you um, about the recent defeat of Proposition 30 here in California, which was a kind of wealth tax that didn't pass. Uh, Well, taxes in California um, are a a kind of, is a study, a kind of archaeological study in and of itself. Uh, And uh, if you look at the history of our tax system in California, you see some of the grossest inequities. Uh, And this is true of the property tax, it's true of uh, almost every kind of tax we have here in California. Uh, And I think some of them were passed with the best of intentions, uh, but it's a bizarre tax system. Uh, I don't know how we get out of the corner we are now in, but I can say uh, that we still, we still should, notwithstanding everything, we shall still should tr- strive to be a state that leads the way in terms of showing the rest of the world and certainly the rest of the country what a truly progressive tax system can be. We have some of the richest people in the world here in California. Uh, they're not deserting California because they are taxed too much. In fact, they want to be here. Uh, And let's keep them here, but let's tax them more. This next one is in the back towards your left. Hello. Um, I have a two-part thing that's going on for me. First is a comment and then is a question for you. And first, actually, I want to start first by saying thank you for being here with us. First of all, I want to make a comment about the person uh, or to the person who was asking about student loan forgiveness, asking about whether people who get um, advanced degree, or well, college, I guess also, and also advanced degrees, whether we have skin in the game. I have a doctorate that cost me $209,000. I have skin in the game, not just financially, but in terms of the amount of time that it took me to do it, the emotional investment, there is skin in the game whether or not you pay money. So I think that's really important for all of us to know. Let me just add to that, because uh, I met fairly recently uh, an elderly woman uh, who, when we started talking about student debt, began to cry. And I asked her, well, you know, I I can understand that maybe you have a child or a grandchild uh, who is paying student debt. And she said, no, I'm paying student debt. Uh, now, I asked her I, very politely, I said, well, may I ask you your age? She said, I'm 77. And I said, well, how can you be paying student debt? She said, my social security checks are being garnished by the government because I co-signed my grandchild's guarantee with regard to my grandchild's student debt. This is a much bigger issue than simply young people. We've got to understand this is a society-wide issue, and we've got to get on 
with what has to be done. And I offered two options, but uh, obviously we've got to find others. Just to cap that off, we're invested whether we're paying or not, whether we get the loan forgiveness or not, we're invested. That's what it takes to get one of these degrees. And then I also have a question. I'm wondering, I'm so impressed with everything that you're doing, and I'm also so scared for our future in this country. And I want to know how much do you, I have a doctorate in psychology, and I'm also uh, training to become a psychoanalyst, and I want to know how much do you make use of um, psychology research? How much can you make use of somebody like me, of my colleagues? I want to help. How can we help? Well, we want your help, and just um, talk to uh, Heather. Uh, I'm going to talk to you, Heather. Great. Uh, I look forward but, to it. But let me just say, in terms of social psychology, and I have investigated this in a number of research projects and books, uh, there is no doubt in my mind that part of the appeal of Trumpism, and let's call it Trumpism because it goes beyond Donald Trump, that is a kind of anger and an anger that spills over into a willingness to even get rid of our democracy uh, because that anger is being channeled uh, in the direction of scapegoats, immigrants, uh, people of color, uh, people who are different in some way. That anger and that scapegoating, uh, it seems to me, is directly related to the fact that there are so many people in this country, particularly people who are without college degrees, who are often living in rural areas where they're fairly isolated, but this is not in any way limited to rural areas, but people who are not getting ahead, uh, who uh, are finding that they are living barely paycheck to paycheck, Uh, There is no longer any possibility of upward mobility for them, and they believe with some justification that the system is rigged against them. Uh, And what Donald Trump and what Trumpism does is it says to them, uh, you matter, you're important, I'm going to give you a voice, Uh, you can act out uh, your anger, you can be part of our tribe, you can be part of our identity culture, Uh, you can be part of our cult. I'm not in any way, and I want you to understand, I'm not trying to justify this. I'm trying to explain it. If we have a shrinking middle class, and a larger and larger number of people who are effectively disenfranchised in this country, economically and politically, we are asking for Trumpism. And that means the most effective way of dealing with this crisis, and I do think it's a crisis. It's a crisis for our democracy, and it's a crisis for the unity of our country, uh, is to widen the circle of prosperity, make sure our system is fairer, give people an opportunity, real opportunities to get ahead, provide such things as that other countries, other advanced countries you can get, paid leave when you are sick, for example. Uh, you know, social insurance that covers things that we now think are, are luxuries, but are not luxuries in most other advanced countries, we have got to give people an even break in this country, and that is the best answer to Trumpism.
Uh, again, thank you for being here, as they just said. I'm curious about uh, monopolies, especially living here in Silicon Valley, where there are so many companies that are the de facto standard for if you want to search something on the web or if you want to ask for a ride on your phone or if you want to, uh, so many things that we have kind of monopolies here. So the question is like, what are uh, the most dangerous monopolies and uh, what can the people do to combat this? Well, I, I think that uh, many of the largest uh, tech firms uh, are basing their profits, and they are still very profitable, notwithstanding the fact that they are laying people off. They're still very profitable. Uh, they base their profits on a different kind of monopolization. Uh, the old monopolization was economies of scale. That is, you create uh, huge economies of scale, you can theoretically gain a monopoly, uh, but it also gives you a great deal of power to undermine any competitor. Uh, but these kinds of economies are not economies of scale, they're economies that we, we might say are economies of scope. Uh, that is, the more people that join Facebook, the more everybody else needs to join it in order to be heard and communicate. The more people join Twitter, the more everybody else has to join it in order to be heard and communicate. Uh, you don't need too many of these hubs on these communication uh, systems, but you need a few. And they begin to have characteristics of public utilities. Less and less like normal competitive companies like Procter Gamble, more and more like you would think uh, a, a, a public carrier uh, would have, or as we used to call it. Uh, so I think embedded in your question is what do we do about these monopolies, and they are monopolies, and I think the answer is we will have to eventually start treating them as quasi-public utilities. Thank you both very much. This has been a terrific evening. I had a question about examples because uh, I think you make a compelling case for part of the drive of inequality in America being the shift between uh, the division between people who earn money and live off their income and people who have enormous assets and live off of uh, some fraction of income from those assets. And that that, of course, signals the need for a wealth tax and a shift to more emphasis on a taxation on wealth rather than income. Are there examples of that having been done effectively in other countries? Uh, well, there, there's certainly examples of wealth taxes uh, in, I mean, in the United States, for example, we do have a wealth tax in terms of a property tax. Uh, other countries have tried wealth taxes, uh, but nobody has succeeded yet because nobody's tried uh, in, uh, in the ways that we have, uh, again, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Bernie Sanders, and others have proposed. Uh, Part of the issue is that no other country has the same degree of concentrated wealth we have in this country now. Uh, and historically, we have not had this since, as I said, the 1880s or 1890s, and nobody thought at that time of having at least a, a wealth tax. We didn't even have an income tax at that point. Uh, so we would have to be, as we are pioneers in concentrated wealth, 
We would have to be pioneers in trying to do something about it. This question's in the center. You mentioned earlier that we should strive to work, um, to have conversations with the other side of the political divide. And yet your primary uh, platform right now is TikTok, which is generously described as a bubble generator, uh, an echo chamber generator. I'm wondering for your thoughts on how to best strive to have those political conversations outside of those echo chambers. Well, what we're trying to do, uh, and this is all an experiment, it's an ongoing experiment, uh, is to use these platforms in ways that they have not been used to date in terms of reaching out, not so much to people whose minds are closed and utterly committed, but people who are, let's call them purple, and purple states or purple counties or purple cities, uh, who are at least open to the possibility of having a dialogue. Uh, and as I said, before, and there is some data, and we have some data on this, uh, people are open to issues that start with their own kitchen table, with their own economic lives, with what is on their minds in terms of the difficulties they are having simply making ends meet or surviving. Uh, this is not a problem only of the working class. It's not a problem only of the poor. It's also a problem of the middle class and the upper middle class. It's a problem of people who are trying to afford housing across America. It's a problem of people who are trying to afford health care across America. If we deal with these issues, if we start with these issues and have a dialogue with people about what is actually on their minds, what's troubling them, we can build build a conversation, but we can go beyond a conversation, we can start building a coalition. And I think that one reason it has been so divisive, and this country has become so divisive, is because that kind of coalition is and poses an extraordinary potential threat to what can only be described as the American oligarchy. They don't want that kind of multiracial, multi-class uh, coalition uh, to come together uh, and demand, essentially demand, and get a wealth tax that would pay for many of the things that we've talked about, or I've talked about tonight, that we need. But I believe, and I think the elections we've just had suggests that my optimism may be complete, not unfounded. I believe we can get there. I believe we will get there, and I believe we have to get there. Thank you all. Thank you all for coming tonight. <laughs>